I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Remember that I... Nearly don't speak English, so... You <laughs> speak extremely good English. Okay, you're liars, but... Taking you back to the golden era of Formula One. Mavericks, free spirits, drivers dicing with danger and even death. Welcome to Formula Once Upon a Time. Biggest events and incidents from the history of Formula One. The behind-the-scenes stories that could not be told until now. Here's Norman Howell and Roberto Bocafogli. Well, here we are, Roberto. Okay. Finally, face-to-face. Very good. And you know what? <laughs> Sharing a beer. Fantastic. A good uh, Moretti. Other beers are available, obviously, but in this particular case, we have a beer. We're here at Whittlebury Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very silent Whittlebury Hall, actually. So it's all uh, so far so silent. <laughs> so far so silent. But so um, so today we're going to talk about the handshake, the handshake in Formula One, which um, is important. Uh, Bernie, uh, for a long, long time, most people who worked for Bernie didn't have contracts. They had a handshake. Well, that was my situation. If I remember that when I first worked for him, he. Uh, we went through everything and, you know, the title and all these silly things. And eventually I said, so who do I see about a contract? And so he just got up from behind his desk and uh, put his hand out. So you have a terrible moment, you know, and you thought you just, just put your hand out. What can you do? And that was it. That was, that was, that was my contract. Um, and a lot of people had that. In fact, when Liberty Media took over, uh, they were amazed at how many people, some of the older people, obviously, in Formula One, in FOM, actually had handshake contracts, and they just couldn't believe it. But for Bernie, it was fundamental. In fact, in his office, he has, and he still had and still has, a picture of Enzo Ferrari directly in his line of vision. So if you sit in front of him, you don't see it, but mm-hmm. it's right behind you. And it's the old black and white picture of Enzo Ferrari with dark glasses. And once I was in his office, and uh, I asked him why he had that picture there, and he, why he had it in his line of vision. And he said, well, this is, this is the one man I could shake hands with and always trust. Also because, if I can add something, Norman, also because Bernie, at the time of the great fight between him, the FOCA, of Formula One Constructors Association, and the FIA, with Jean-Marie Ballest as president, where they were just fighting. And Ferrari was officially on the side of FIA. But Mr. Eccleston and Ferrari, I think, uh, recognized themselves, each other. And so they anyway were complying very well, understanding each other very well. So, and so with his incredible ability to stay on both sides a little bit, he was officially on one side, less officially on the other one, gave the possibility, first of all, to 
re-put together the situation because in 8081, the world in Formula One was divided into two different planets, yeah. FIA yeah. and FOCA. And uh, this uh, was this group, uh, so Eccleston and um, Ferrari and maybe also Jean-Marie Ballest were able to recompact everything. And thanks to, thanks to that, we still have Formula One because Formula One was risking to falling apart Explode. those times. Absolutely. Explode. Yes, on the one hand, you had uh, the guarantors, as it were, the FIA and Ballest. And, and on the other hand, you had the garagistes, which were the mostly British uh, teams who were... Uh, just built cars and shoved an engine in and went racing and weren't too worried about the rules and regulations. So Bernie managed to straddle over this as did Enzo Ferrari. So that's why we have this great Formula One. But going back to the handshake, I remember we, we, we're going to look this time at a story of uh, a handshake that maybe went a little bit wrong, mm-hmm. allegedly. <laughs> a little so, bit. <laughs> uh, so the story we have here is a story of, uh, of uh, for McLaren. Mm-hmm which had a Ford engine, which wasn't going terribly well. And uh, the team was looking around for another engine. This is after the wonderful, wonderful years of, of Honda when they just won absolutely everything that it was possible to win. So now Ron Dennis is faced with finding another engine. But as far as we know, Ron Dennis shook hands with the then CEO of Chrysler Lamborghini, a man called Lee Iacocca. Mm-hmm. Lamborghini was obviously an Italian engine in Italy, but uh, had been bought by Chrysler. And um, this was a perfect fit for for McLaren. At the same time, one of the biggest shareholders of McLaren, Mansour Roger, who was based in Paris and had very, very good connections in France, had put forward the option of a, a Peugeot engine. So that is when things started unraveling a little bit. Do you remember a little bit about this story? I remember it totally, because it was, as you said, the incredible 1993 season. After so many years, winning by far with Honda, McLaren in 1993 was with Ford, with a very normal Ford engine. With that Ford, Mr. Senna was anyway capable to win five times. Five times. One of them was the unbelievable, unrepeatable Donington Grand Prix in the rain. In the rain. Where he totally got rid of Alan Prost, who had uh, worked very well with a lot of success to get to Williams for that year, because Prost retired from Ferrari at the end of 91. He had a one-year stop in 1992. Then he was capable to get Williams, who was the rising up team for 1993. But uh, the case is that Ayrton wanted that Williams, and he was working to go with that Williams because, because he was understanding since the end of '92 that McLaren with the Ford was not McLaren anymore. So, can I just interrupt you there? Yep. McLaren with the Ford. I remember once interviewing Ayrton. Actually, it was at the end of an interview, mm-hmm. and he was looking very tired. And I, and I, it was, I can't remember which race it was, honestly, but I remember. And I said to him, "You, you know, you look very tired." He said, "You see, for me, driving this car is really tiring." Because every Formula One driver will tell you, you never drive a car to its 100% potential for all kinds of reasons. Essentially, also to have a safety margin of your own. Yeah. This car, I am driving at 95%. Yeah. And it scares me. It is absolutely sure. I mean, I didn't know this, eh? and it really moves me. Because to Senna, admitting something like this was really a great moment. It was for sure because he was absolutely tired, because he never admitted things like that. He didn't want to open himself to this point. I mean, he was doing the job. 
the job is done, finish. I win, I don't win. Senna was not saying very much on how much he was really struggling or suffering in any moment. If he said that, it was because he was really beyond his limit. And for sure he was. Because, I mean, in 1993, Williams was unbeatable. They came from 92 with Nigel dominating the season. 93, the car was even more powerful. Prost was simply delivering the job. Perfectly, was a great driver, but not the greatest Prost. The greatest Prost was by the times of McLaren on the second 80s. Mm. And he simply won the championship with some struggle, but he won. And Senna was absolutely destroyed about that. That's why when Lamborghini came out, Senna absolutely wanted that. Because Senna was able to test the Lamborghini engine. I remember an Estoril test. After that, Senna said, Don, let's get it. The engine is fantastic. Let's go with that so I can have my absolute fight back already from next year, which was 1994. And I remember that instead we had a secret mission to Paris one day. And off we flew on the company jet. And we land in Paris. And we land at Le Bourget Airport in the private section. And there is a blacked-out espace waiting for us. I mean, it's just, you know, slightly surreal, but it was true. With Mansour Ojeh driving it. And we go to the Boulevard de la Grande Armée, where Peugeot's headquarters are in, in central Paris. We go underground in the car park. We are whisked up the stairs in this huge, beautiful boardroom where, you know, the negotiation happened. But it was very quick. It happened very quickly. I also remember, it was funny, we broke for lunch. and uh, Well, we didn't break for lunch. Lots of sandwiches arrived, very beautifully presented, of course, being Paris, and some, some bottles of wine. And, of course, the McLaren contingent didn't go any near the wine. Well, all the Peugeot executives were happily having a glass of wine at lunchtime, which was quite a funny cultural divide. But anyway, the deal was done. Suddenly the door opens, this incredibly energetic man called Corrado Provera rolls in. He'd just come back from holiday and he'd heard about this and he just came, you know, and uh, everything was happening and press releases and it's all very exciting. And then we just go back into his pass, going back to the airport. And, and, and Mansour Ajay was driving and Ron Dennis was sitting in the front seat of this pass. And the phone rang. And it was Ayrton, who had been testing the Lamborghini engine. And he thought it was fantastic. And he was telling Ron this. And Ron said, yes, Ayrton, but we've got a bit of a problem. I, I don't remember the exact words. I wasn't taking notes of it. But it was something along the line. Oh, well, yes, Ayrton, I know. Yes, yeah. yes, got a bit of a problem. But, you know, I mean, I'm in Paris. You know, we've been talking to Peugeot. And from what I, c I couldn't hear the other end of the conversation, but it sounded as if Ayrton was pretty upset about things. So it all happened in a very, very strange way. But I think, Norman, that we, can, we must go a little bit back from that moment because uh, the first tests with Lamborghini were very exciting to McLaren. Everybody were. I mean, the Technic people were absolutely happy. I remember Steve Nichols by then. He was totally happy about the Lamborghini, not only Senna. And they made the deal. This was the handshake, you remember? You remember when they met? Because the first meeting, it was between, uh, between uh, Ron Dennis, and who at the time was, where, was Ron Dennis. I yeah. mean, the he man. was a monument in Formula yes, 1. He, he was, was the second Enzo Ferrari of Formula 1. Yes, he because he was winning, 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 winning. He was a great guy in Formula 1 by then. 
And there they got the agreement and it was there. Please tell you, please tell you what about the handshake between them. Because somebody was asking for a contract and, uh, and uh, Ron replied, what did you reply? A handshake is, is, my, is my contract. Between gentlemen? Between gentlemen. We don't need contracts. Yeah. That's why. And the American people went home saying, oh, yes, for sure, they are gentlemen. So please, let's do it. <laughs> I caught up with Bob McMurray, who likes to remind me that he joined McLaren in 1968 as a truckie and then ended up with a business card that just said manager. He wasn't quite sure of what, but he was probably the closest person to Ron Dennis there was at McLaren. Bob, I wanted to have you know, a bit of a ch- your recollections of that period. And even if you weren't directly involved, you would, you would still know more than most people about that. And just really about the mood there was at the time, you know, the Ford engine, you know, Ayrton. If you could just, you know, bring us back into those days and, and how it was at, at Woking and what the thinking was and the mood. I think the first thing is that um, you talk about the good old days in Formula One. The, the good old days for anybody in Formula One has been there between 18 and 35 uh, because the people now think they're in the good old days in Formula One. But I know, you know, most people who do know who were around from mid-70s to uh, late 90s, they were the good years in Formula One. They were the good old days. Things, were, things used to happen in a paddock that everybody knew about. It was, that was your street you lived in. That was, your, um, that was your village. And like any villages, there was a mayor who was probably, um, <laughs> I won't call him Bernie, he was president, uh, and there was a mayor by default, and that was probably a lot of the time was Pasquale, um, and everybody hated the mayor, and everybody respected the president. So I, I think the um, I think the whole time in, during that period was a wonderful time, frankly, because all the teams were together. They it was still a time when you can you could knock on the garage next door and go in there and borrow a bolt or whatever it was. So it was a good time. Um, in the, and of course, leading up to the early 90s, um, McLaren was the team to beat. It's quite simple. We, we, we'd, we'd won everything, 88 and 89, you know, we kept on going. The team were first or second in the Constructors' Championship every year. And um, we thought we could win a race on three wheels, frankly. Um, although Lewis Hamilton has proven that eight, that is possible lately. <laughs> but we actually thought at McLaren we could. Um, and it was also a time when everybody followed McLaren. Very few people at that time worked for McLaren. They worked for Ron Dennis. Ron was a, um, was a complete leader. If he'd have asked us to jump over a cliff, um, if he'd have held our hands and done it with us, we would have gone. You yeah. know, there was a tremendous feeling of, um, Ron says it's good, it's good, we'll do it. He was the leader, an uh, inspirational leader. So when, when we were winning everything and then um, with Honda Engines and Ayrton Senna uh, was there, and then suddenly there was, I, I'm not sure why Honda pulled out. I think it was to do with global finance or something like that. They just decided to pull out of Formula One, 92. Um, and it was a bit of a shock, obviously, to the team, to everybody, because kind of you think that that sort of thing's going to go on forever. But it didn't. It was a difficult period for McLaren, simple as that. It was a very difficult period for McLaren. And it was obviously a difficult period for RD because he was trying to organise things to come. So when 
um, Honda pulled out and Ayrton was less than keen on staying with the team and the customer Ford engine, um, he ended up being paid race by race for much of the season. Ron managed to get money out of Marlborough and out of uh, Courtaulds. Yeah, it was Courtaulds, yeah. With a million bucks a race for, uh, for Ayrton, just to keep him there that year. Obviously, with Honda going, the, the aim for Ron all the time was to try and get a, uh, a factory engine. Because you're a customer, you're no good. You're, you're paying for the engines and you're always going to get second, second engines rather than the, the premium quality. So Ron was looking for another manufacturer to, to replace Honda, but he couldn't, I guess he couldn't get one at that time. So we had to, um, we had to go, or he had to go with Ford engines, customer engines. And as I say, the, the, the period was a little bit disruptive because we lost Gerhard Berger. It was pretty obvious that Ayrton was going to leave at the end of 1993. Is that because the relationship with Ron had broken down a bit? Uh, maybe a little bit, but mainly because Honda had gone. He couldn't see a future, Yeah, um, yeah. I think. And don't forget at that time, Williams were becoming the preeminent team. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if he was offered something with Williams, he was going to go. And he was Yeah. Uh, later in the season. What happened then? Honda pulled out. Uh, had an average Ford engine, and um, Ron obviously needed something special. So, if nothing else, he had to try and appease Senna, um, Ayrton Senna, because he didn't like um, running just a customer old Ford engine instead of a factory engine somewhere. Bearing in mind that even with this, and I think it was probably 50 horsepower down on anything else that was out there, um, he won four or five races that year. With, yeah. with an old Ford engine in the back of the chassis because the chassis was a good chassis, really. Um, but anyway, so it, it was done, I think, to, uh, to appease Ayrton as much as anything else, to try and convince him to stay, to try and convince him to be part of the team. Hmm. And then uh, the Peugeot deal was done. And, um, but at the time, we also had the Lamborghini engine in the background. And Ron was convinced to test that. Uh, or get the drivers to test it. And both um, Ayrton and Mika Hakkinen tested the, the engine. The thing was absolutely fantastic. It was really, really fantastic. It was like, an, I was told once by one of the engineers, it was like an Exocet missile. It used to go off like an absolute rocket, be as fast as it possibly can, and then explode almost immediately because it was fitted with Semtex pistons. So the engine was an absolute bomb. It used to fly. Can I just interrupt you there a second, Bob? Bob, when you say sem, I mean you, you know me. I'm the least mechanical person you've ever met, probably. So when you talk about Semtex pistons, are you oh, being ironic or uh, or are they really called? <laughs> should we should we call it facetious? Semtex <laughs> is a well-known explosive, and this thing had twelve of them exactly. going up and down. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought, but I just want to make sure that. So yeah. extraordinary reason it was also wasn't no, no. a piston. No, no, no. It was uh, it, it was like a missile. It used to go incredibly fast. I think it, um, I seem to remember that at one test there was um, Martin Brundle was due to test it or something like that, and he waited around all day, got in the thing at Silverstone, didn't do a whole lap before it exploded round the back. And I think somewhere I remember him saying that he had pistons coming past his head while he was going <laughs> forward. So anyway, the thing was quite powerful. It really was. It was, uh, as I say, it was, it was probably at the time, I mean, 750, 770 horsepower. Uh, so it was com comparable with the Renault and the Ferrari and all that sort of stuff. Um, but 
it was it never came to be so simple as that yeah and i think that caused a few problems between rd and chrysler maybe even tag turbo mansarosa at the time mm. um but r- r- at the time i think ron was um he had high hopes that Peugeot would be would come into Formula One because they wanted to. They'd been in sports car racing all this time, and probably that was the problem. They came into Formula One with the sports car engine, mm. which was really good for twenty four hours, but given an hour and a half of maximum revs, and it wasn't um, yeah. it wasn't as good at all. Um, but if yes. you if you have a factory backing you, um, that means you are not paying for engines anymore. They are paying you to run their engines, and that would have been the complete reverse to the Ford deal. Yes. So uh, you know that's why Ron was after a factory, and but, presumably Bob the the potential Lamborghini Chrysler deal. The same thing would have happened there, wouldn't he? Yes, yes, absolutely. The Chrysler were coming in boots and all, um, and it fitted the car. The car had to be, I think, modified because the you know, Chrysler engine was a little longer. Mm. I just know that all of a sudden we were looking straight at Persia. Mm-hmm. Um, I got the wind of it because I was down with Ron down in his house in the south of France and there's a Peugeot garage not very far from there and I went and picked up two brand new Peugeot convertibles. <laughs> um, this was when the, <laughs> the deal hadn't been done and I thought, yeah, okay, this is uh, something going on here. These were the house, uh, cars for the house. So uh, <laughs> anyway, that was the first indication to me that things were going well. Bob McMurray at McLaren from 1968. So a real insight. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Formula Once Upon a Time. You can see why also Ron Dennis did this. Ron Dennis also had to look after his people. There was probably about a thousand employees already at McLaren at the time. They had an extraordinary driver. He had to just get it right. And he couldn't be sentimental. And faced with an enormous company like Peugeot, which was 
clearly bigger than Lamborghini at all levels. You can see why he took that decision. I think we can know that. Consider that uh, by the end of 1993, Peugeot was uh, without Jean Todt since two years before. Two years before. So Peugeot was coming from the great victories at the 24 hour of Le Mans with Jean Todt. Then Jean left and went to Formula One, Ferrari. Who remained in Peugeot? Jean Pierre Jabouille, who was a, a very nice driver in the 70s in Formula One, in the very early 80s in Formula One. He was winning the first Grand Prix of a turbo, of a turbo car. Nobody remembers it, but he was in 79. And uh, he was there. When Jean Todd knew about Lamborghini dealing with McLaren, he was very scared. But more than him, Luca di Montezemolo, his president, was. Because it was not an easy moment for Ferrari, but considering the possibility that a Lamborghini, Italian like Ferrari, very close to them and so on, was maybe coming and beating them with McLaren was unacceptable. Nightmare. So Jean Todd, who knew very well the situation in Peugeot, who knew that Jean-Pierre Jabouille didn't have so great weapons to fight the difficult moment of Peugeot then, was thinking that if McLaren was there, Peugeot, to have McLaren, was able to do anything, was open to do anything, and this happened. Yes, and in, and in the end, Peugeot punched way, way below its weight. You know, I mean, uh, I remember once they came second at the race and they they were having a drink and they invited Ron to come into the, the motorhome and, and Ron came in and they congratulated him and, and Ron said, well, I'm, I'm not having a drink, you know, second is the first of the losers and just walked out again. And so the relationship with Peugeot was quite tough from quite early on because I think the technical people in McLaren realized that for a variety of reasons, Peugeot weren't to use a silly British expression, weren't quite at the races. So there was a sense that something had gone wrong there. But clearly Peugeot were providing the engines and the know-how for free. And possibly they were paying. They were, definitely. Lamborghini wanted to be paid. So that's another factor. And this is the reality of Formula One. We've heard in some other podcasts from Ian Phillips and a few other people that you know money talks. Of course it does. So that was part of the reason why Peugeot were favoured. Much more of an insight into Peugeot's thinking and why they wanted to get involved from Corrado Provera. Corrado Provera was their, was their, I can't remember his title exactly, but essentially he was a director of communications and PR for the whole company. He was this bull-like uh, Italian, uh, but he lived in France most of his life. And he was a real... I remember very clearly once that uh, Corrado Provera when Peugeot already were having some slight difficulties right at the beginning with Ron Dennis, Corrado Provera came to McLaren, came to Woking, which was in the old factory. He came up the stairs. I, I met him. Remember Bernie's, uh, Ron Dennis's office was at the top of the stairs. And he came in, he looked at me, and he got into the ante room where uh, uh, Ron's two secretaries were. He took his jacket off. He rolled up his sleeves and Corrado was, as I said, he was a bull-like man. He had big forearms. You know, he was, he was a sort of wrestler-looking type. Rolled up, he took his jacket, rolled up his sleeves, and then said, right, I'm going in. Knocked on Ron's door and walked straight in. No. And closed the door behind. I was, you know, I was about to, you know, I was the head of communication of McLaren. I was about to come in, boom, door was slammed on my face. And Corrado sat down with Ron, and they had a chat. <laughs> Corrado is... 
first of all, he's Italian. Yeah. I know him well because he was with Jean Todd as chief of communication in Peugeot since I met him first when Peugeot was starting with the Rally World Championship, so mid-80s. Then he followed all the Jean Todd era in Peugeot. He knew Jean Todd, Jean Todd like, anybody, n- mm-hmm. like nobody else. So he was very happy to fight Jean Todd in Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and he was very much loving, loving, loving Peugeot because even then, even much afterwards, when uh, Corrado becomes the chief of Peugeot Motorsport for the Rally World Championship once yeah. again, in the end of the 90s, he was ruling Peugeot in the Rally World Championship. And uh, every meeting, every event, every interview, he finished it saying, Vive Peugeot. He loved Vive Peugeot. Peugeot. Yeah, he he did. was simply loving Peugeot. And you know what else he loved? Cuban cigars. Ah, okay. And he used to fo- smoke them in the McLaren. No, it went in Peugeot Motorhome, which is uh-huh. where he could, but he also used to smoke them in McLaren Motorhome. It did not make Mr. Ron Dennis very happy. I know. And Corrado couldn't give, uh, well, a damn, let's say. Okay. Then, if I imagine, it's just a question of imagining, but we met Ron Dennis so many times in the past. And uh, Ron was definitely a Formula One man. He was in Formula One. He was off Formula One. And he felt that Peugeot was Peugeot, no doubt, an incredible, great company, representing France and so on. But Peugeot was lacking that feeling of Formula One. He was lacking this. Definitely. He entered, in, he entered Peugeot. He was paid instead of paying. And that was the difference, the big difference, because he said, sorry, I have a company with many employees and so I must think to them. Sorry, Clarice, I go to Peugeot. But then he understood that things were not going the right direction. And quite quickly, a new gold door opened in front of him, and it was Mercedes. Yeah. So Mercedes saved him from that situation. He, he was a great admirer of Mercedes. He was a great admirer of, 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 uh, of the Germanic way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, Ron Dennis, uh, as we all know, very, very, very precise and accurate. And yes, absolutely right. You know, he thought that Mercedes was, was, was the savior. And, and, and of course, they were. You know, mm-hmm. in many ways, they were. So the relationship with Peugeot just never took off properly. No. And, um, and this may be also soured, you know, some of, you know, because Mansoor just set it up. So, you know, we, these were some difficult internal cultural issues within, within, within the company. Because remember Ian Phillips said that, that in the end Peugeot went... They went to Jordan. Yeah, they went to Jordan. Yeah. And, and Ron had to pay Jordan yes. to, break, to finish the contract. So I think that is where, as Roberto absolutely correctly said, the problem with Peugeot was very much that they were not imbued with Formula One. Yes. And let's not forget, Roberto, and you know this better than I do, although I've heard Mr. Todd say it more than once, and I did work for Todd. He left Peugeot because he wanted Peugeot to go into Formula One. Correct. Totally correct. And Peugeot were not right at the time. They were not ready, sorry, at the time. And so, with the help of Bernie and Montezemolo, Jean Todd ended up at Ferrari. Ended up sounds like a negative thing, but you know, and we know what incredible success he made of that. Can you imagine the people at Peugeot thinking that had Jean Todd stayed? Wow. 
<laughs> what Peugeot could have done. Because under Todd, Peugeot won, as you say, Le Mans. They won the Paris Dakar. They won everything he could possibly win. Rally World Championship. Not, they won everything. They started in the Rally, in the rally. The rally World Championship and they, they, won and they beat Audi. Yeah, they Audi won was inventing the four-wheel drive. He came again. Yeah. Sorry, he came in 1984 and he won... Really? Drivers and constructors yeah. crown 85 and 86. Yeah. Then the regulation changed. They left Group B in rallying. They went back to Group A. And Peugeot said, sorry, we are not for this. We want to race with prototype. And they stopped. They went to Dakar, winning Dakar. And they won Dakar. They went to Le Mans, and winning they won to Le Mans. Le Mans. One, it was a 1-2-3 at Le Mans. It was a big thing. So, so, so Jean Todd really understood Peugeot, as, as Roberto said earlier, understood exactly the danger of a Lamborghini engine with a highly motivated workforce Absolutely. run by Daniel Audetto, who has, has and, and had a great respect from the, the Formula One insiders. Lamborghini being literally down the road from Ferrari, so it was just a, very much of a, a, a tribal conflict at, at their end. And, 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 and Todd knew this. Todd knew that, that if Lamborghini had got into a McLaren car, they would have caused Ferrari a lot of problems. Yes. And he also knew in, in that Peugeot were not equipped at the time to run a really aggressive Formula One campaign with a kind of hard-headed, ballsy, if you want, even nasty characters that you need in this kind of situation. Peugeot were not structured for that. Yeah. In fact, the thing, as you said, lasted just a season just the 94 season. That was a very bad season because uh, they came to the championship, I mean, the McLaren, they had loads in because then in the end went to Williams yeah. to very sadly die at the third Grand Prix, as we remember, in Imola. In Imola, yes. And the uh, McLaren were without Senna, without a great engine, without a great situation more than an engine. It was without a proper... He was, Ron, I mean, was without something giving him the, the trust on the future. That's why immediately when he, got, he had, when he got a chance with Mercedes, he simply went. They started with Mercedes, and in fact, they started winning very quickly, very quickly, because they won the crown in 98, 99, but already in, in 97, and they also in 96, I think, they were winning quite much. It was an incredible story. McLaren and Mercedes. Ron was made for story like that. Big stories, big company, big names, big tradition, big uh, industrial weight. He wanted all this, which he felt that in Peugeot there was... Uh, well, I think initially he felt he had it. Yeah. I mean, when you go to the, the headquarters Ooh. of Peugeot and Rue de Grande Armée, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty damn impressive. Um, um, but it just didn't quite work. Well, Mercedes had that little bit, well, that little bit, that big, well, they had, in Norbert Haug, they also had the kind of ballsy, aggressive, you know, sometimes unpleasant, but character that would push, push, push all the way through. Peugeot did not have those people mm. at the time. So that made a, made a big, big difference. Also, I think, you know, there were, there were some cultural issues. I mean, it sounds silly, but sometimes these things matter. I remember that Peugeot used to take their engines and drive them overnight back to Paris, mm -hmm. to, to factories outside Paris. And the McLaren people, you know, were involved, but they were not involved. You know, they just didn't seem to get a grip with it. With Mercedes, somehow they just gelled. You know, the mechanics, gelled, you know, the, the engineers, the, the, the structure 
the Mercedes, sorry, the McLaren structure gelled with Mercedes. And, you know, partly because I think Norbert Haug was a racer himself. So he, he, he just got it. He understood a bit like, you know, you don't have to be a Formula One racer. You know, if you look at Toto Wolff, I mean, he's a, he's a good driver. Of course, he's a good driver. He's not a Formula One driver, but mm-hmm. he understands. He understands certain cultural uh, signposts that yes. Peugeot just did not understand. And with Ron being so tough and so determined and so uncompromising, Instead of forming an alliance with Peugeot, they immediately, you know, l'entente cordiale, if you want, they immediately separated in the most Brexity-type silly way, you know, while with Mercedes, it just worked. And they also consider one possibility. By then, Renault was the riding, the riding star in Formula One. Yep. Renault was very strong. So for sure, Ron thought that being McLaren with Peugeot they together could have fought Renault and having a great fight in France, something very, very popular, very, very big. But he may be understood quite quickly that Peugeot didn't have so much muscle to find Peugeot. So when he had Mercedes, and Mercedes, let's not forget, was coming back to Formula One after 40 years because Mercedes was retiring by mid-50s after after Manuel Fangio wins. Fangio won with them in 54, in uh, 55, and then they stopped. So when they decided to get back, Ron was sure that they they wanted to come back and win, win, win. Because the history of winning for Mercedes is lasting today. I mean, they won with McLaren then, and they are winning by themselves now, since now, how many? Seven years? Yeah, uh, uh, not only winning, dominating. And when will they finish? Who knows? I mean, when they want. As to Ferrari. Yes, exactly. (laughs) They'll only finish when they want. Yeah. And that was our podcast about a handshake. A very important gesture in Formula One, sometimes good, sometimes bad. I hope you enjoyed it. Please join us again, Roberto and I, and like us and subscribe. Who knows if Handshake is still living in Formula One? I think that Toto, Toto Wolf uses it. Let's hope so, because I think it's, a, it's, it's romantic, and Formula yep. One is romantic. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.